children are dismissed to junior church. As they make their way, I want to announce that it's great to involve children in the worship service and also in the activities of the church. And um, Mercedes and Ryan and Katie are observing Ken and watching him learn the computer, and they volunteered for that. They just kind of wanted to, and so we're hoping that Ken doesn't corrupt them too much. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I'm grateful for volunteers. And if you're, you or your, if um, your children want to volunteer with something with the church, certainly talk to me. Um, we'll bring back scripture readers in the service more. We haven't done that since COVID began. I think that interrupted that. So we'll keep that in mind. We're going to be going to Romans 8 in a minute, but first I want to just reemphasize those wonderful words. I hope you notice the wonderful words that we are singing to the Lord. And the Gettys, uh, Keith Getty uh, wrote that song. Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend wrote In Christ Alone. Kristen Getty, uh, they're adamant about singing hymn-like new worship songs, but also songs that are full of scripture and just strong Bible doctrine. And we sang choruses today that were right from the Bible, and then this song, His Mercy is More. Think about this. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Do you realize that? God talks about our sins being washed away, the deepest part of the ocean. Omniscient, God's omniscient, all-knowing, God's all-knowing, that's what omniscient means. He counts not their sum, he counts not the sum of our sins. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What riches of his kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford, we could never pay off that debt to sin. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. You realize that? God's love, God's mercy is stronger than darkness, stronger than the enemy trying to accuse us, Satan, that accuser. God's mercy is new every morn. Our sins, there are many as mercy is more. What patience would wait. I'm jumping around in the song now. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. God is patient with us. What father so tender is calling us home. He's wooing us back to him. He desires a relationship with us. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And as we get into Romans 8 and our trek through Romans, we find out more about God's mercy and more about the Holy Spirit who's been bestowed upon us, the Holy Spirit uh, who's with us. And so I invite you to turn to Romans 8 as I set the passage here. Uh, Romans chapter 8. We'll be in Romans 8 for another couple weeks and then go into Romans 9. As we get into Romans chapters 9 through 11, we have some really, really, really deep passages about the, the, the state of Israel. and What's the future of Israel? And so we'll get there eventually. Today we're in just a very um, happy, <clears throat> joyful section of Scripture about the Holy Spirit with us, about our adoption as sons. And that's why I've ca- uh, titled this message, Life in the Spirit. And so to set this up, let me tell you a story about a guy named William Borden. In 1905, uh, 1904, 1904, William Borden graduated from high school. He was the heir to the great Borden milk fortune. You ever heard of Borden milk? I've seen it. I've heard of it. Probably drank it, and you have too. Uh, so for his graduation gift, his parents sent him on a trip around the world, hoping that trip would stimulate his global business interests. However, the opposite happened. Instead, for the first time, he realized how many had never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And he committed himself to becoming a missionary. So his parents sent him around the world, 
hoping to stimulate his, his business, his global business interests. Instead, God touched his life, and God called him to missions. However, when one of his closest friends heard this news, William Borden, was out, um, the, the friend, was outraged and confronted William Borden, telling him that he was throwing his life away. You're throwing your life away to go serve in missions. What crazy person would do that? You're an heir to this, this major fortune. You have this great business career ahead of you. Why would you go on, on the mission field? Borden made a note of the date and wrote these two words in his Bible, just in the cover, no reserves. Yes, they might say he's crazy. They might say he's throwing his life away, but he has no reservations. God called him to missions, and he's going. He then went to Yale University and was a top student, the president of the Honor Society, Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation, he was offered several high-paying, influential jobs. He turned them all down saying he was committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He made a note of the date in his Bible and wrote these two words, no retreat, no reservations. His friend says he's crazy, but he's called to follow the Lord in missions. No reservations. And now no retreat. He's offered all these high-paying jobs, high-profile jobs, but God has called him to missions. No retreat. He eventually set off for China to work with Muslims there. He decided it would be best to learn Arabic before he arrived. So he stopped in Cairo, Egypt to do language study. It was while he was in Egypt that he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, he was dead, still in his 20s, never having even arrived in China. The news of his tragic death was carried by newspapers across the country. Eventually, his belongings were shipped back to the U.S., and his parents... His parents opened his Bible to find a date written just, be, just weeks before he died. Just weeks before he died, he wrote in the front of his Bible, no regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Now the truth is that we can serve God wherever God calls us. And if God calls us to be a businessman or businesswoman or work retail or own a store or be a waiter, waitress, or a cook, or, a, uh, or pick up garbage, whatever it is, God calls us to be a missionary where we're at and to serve him where we're at. But the truth also seems to be to me that he was following the Lord, William Borden. God had called him to this. And it may not have made sense to his parents, but that was God's call in his life. And the Holy Spirit seemed to continually affirm that call to the point where he would write no reserves no retreat no regrets and god called him home when he was not on the actual mission destination that he felt called to though he was already on the way to the mission field and i guarantee you he had no regrets because he was in paradise with god in heaven on his way serving the lord and we ought we ought all to be serving the lord wherever the lord places us and we ought all to hopefully want to go to the Lord to be with him in heaven while we are serving him, right? As opposed to being taken up to heaven while doing something that would be running from what he's called us to do. Today I wish to continue our trek through Romans. As we look at a passage, I want to encourage that this, this passage encourages us with our close relationship with God. 
and challenged us to walk by the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. William Borden, we can tell, he had that close relationship with God, that close calling, and he was so gung-ho for it that he was going to walk by the Spirit regardless of what his friends said, regardless of what others said, regardless of these high-profile job offers. He was on that call, and we ought to walk by the Spirit too. This passage here in Romans is about perseverance in the Christian life. Perseverance in the Christian life. But not on our own. No. The Holy Spirit is within us. If you were to open up a concordance or go to BibleGateway.com, you can look up the word persevere and perseverance. And you will find it many, 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 many times in the New Testament. Perseverance. But... You also find throughout the New Testament that we do not persevere on our own. We live life with God and with the Holy Spirit in us. So we persevere with God really working in us. The Christian life is a life of living by the Spirit, persevering to conquer sin and make Jesus Lord of our lives. And I want to ask you as we go through this, are you making Jesus Lord of your life? See, many times we think there are just certain things that are just part of life, even part of the Christian life. And some things are. We will suffer. The Christian life is not always an easy life. But worry and fear and anxiety ought not to be a normal part of the Christian life. Now, sometimes we have chemical imbalances that are organic issues that cause that depression or that anxiety or that fear. But many times, God wants us to trust him. And our fear and our anxiety and our worry is a sign that we're really not trusting him. And that's something we need a prayer journal about and talk to him about and get into the word. I read Psalm 1611 earlier. In God's presence is fullness of joy. Now, it's natural that if we're living for the world, we're definitely going to have extreme fear and anxiety and worry. Sometimes the fear and anxiety and worry come from real problems, real concerns. We're at the doctor's office and we get that diagnosis. And that's when we really need to go to the Lord. We really need to go to prayer. We need to go to our church family, our friends, and say, pray for me. This is a scary diagnosis to hear the C word. Well, this passage is all about living by the Spirit, persevering in the Christian life. Let's look at verse 12. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 12 right now. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You see that? We are debtors, but he says, not to the flesh. I'm going to come back to that word flesh in a few minutes. Flesh has to do with the fallenness, the sin sin nature within us. We're debtors, but not to the sin nature to live according to the flesh. Paul begins with, so then. And there's a double connective here that, can, that, that cannot be easily preserved in the English. You could translate these first two words, so then, and instead of translating them so then, you could translate them consequently therefore, emphasizing the conclusion of what he has been arguing. Paul is building up his argument. All through Romans chapter 8, Paul is building up an argument. And when we get to Romans 8 verses 29 and 30 and 31 and 32, we see, you know, the the high crescendo of that argument, you know, the mountain peak, so to speak. He's building up this argument. So let's put this in context. In the previous verses, Paul wrote about our life in the Spirit, capital S, our life in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Wow. 
We worship him. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. The same Holy Spirit who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead lives within us. The same Holy Spirit who allowed Jesus to turn water into wine and to walk on water and to feed the 5,000, to do all those miracles, to raise the dead. That's the same Holy Spirit in us right now. Now let me say, some of us may not be experiencing the peace that passes understanding. And it could be because of the really horrible diagnosis we're dealing with or, the, or organic issues. But it could also be, just it could be, only you know this and the Holy Spirit convicting you. It could be because you're not living life with Jesus. You're not in the Bible. You're not in, what's your prayer life like? You're not spending time with your church family. You're not in these spiritual disciplines. Discipline is kind of a scary word unless you're in football, right? So you're not in these spiritual activities. And so I exhort you, I encourage you, pour your life into spiritual activities, into spiritual disciplines. This is all, this chapter is all about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not going to give you what you could get on your own by partnering with them. And what do I mean by that? I mean, sometimes we expect the Holy Spirit to give us all the comfort and the peace and the joy and all that when really we're not even following him. We're not even in the Bible. The Holy Spirit works in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit works in the Word of God. I heard the phrase, I've used it a lot, let the Word of God do the work of God. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be with our church community. So Paul has been talking about this powerful, awesome gift that the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. He will also give us life through His Spirit. And that's a powerful section. This is a powerful chapter. And that brings us to these verses. We are debtors. We are debtors. But debtors to what? Paul will answer this. We are not debtors to the flesh. We are not debtors to the flesh. Paul even clarifies more. We are not debtors to live according to the flesh. We're not called to live according to the flesh. Sometimes we're not experiencing the fullness of joy that God offers because on one hand, we're trying to live by the Spirit. On the other hand, we're trying to live by the Spirit. I mean by the flesh. We're trying to live by the Spirit and live by the flesh at the same time. And we need to repent of the things of the flesh and pursue living for Jesus. I like what Tim Keller, Tim Keller's a writer, pastor, apologist, and he would say when college kids come to him and talk to him about doubting the authority of the Bible and, and they don't believe the Bible anymore and they don't believe their Christian faith anymore, and he'll first ask them, who are you sleeping with? Because oftentimes we do have real doubts. But oftentimes also those doubts are caused by our own sins that we want to live in and our own sins that we want to condone or maybe the sins of a family member or a friend that we want to condone. We want to say they're okay. And, we need to, and the Bible speaks objectively into our life and we need to repent of this sin and, and surrender to the authority of the word of God and follow him. So we're not debtors to the flesh. We're not debtors to live according to the flesh. We're not, we don't live according to the flesh. In the New Testament, flesh usually means the sinful state, the fallen state, the depraved state that we are in without Christ. It's the Greek word that uh, translated as sarks is the Greek word. And it's the fallen state. And Paul had been writing about how the flesh can't get us to heaven, right? The flesh cannot get us to heaven. Remember the sermon uh, two or three weeks ago on Romans 7. It was three weeks ago, I think. Romans 7. And I made the case that I believe in Romans 7, Paul was saying he could not get there. He could not do right in his fleshly state. He needed divine intervention. He needed God help. He needed to surrender to Jesus. At the end of Romans 7, Paul said, you know, who is to deliver me? Jesus. Only Jesus can deliver us. The, the law won't make us, won't, won't, won't get us to heaven. We, what we need is not more law. We need salvation from Jesus' death on the cross. The flesh will not get us to heaven. We cannot be righteous by the flesh. So moving on here, in verse 13, Paul continues his thought. 
Remember, he said we're not debtors. Now he picks up there. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Look at that. You live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Notice the contrast. If you live according to the flesh, the flesh, which represents the sinful, fallen nature, the flesh equals death. Think about a whiteboard or a chalkboard. Flesh equals sign death. But if by the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you die. Paul is about to show contrast. But if the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is interesting. So say, uh, say someone is saved. They're a Christian. They have the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 of this chapter, Romans 8, 9 says, If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. So say someone's saved. They're a Christian. They have the Holy Spirit. But you know what? They still need to make a conscious effort. To not live in the flesh, but by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. It's that word, perseverance. We still need to partner with the Holy Spirit. Partner with the Holy Spirit to live and surrender to Jesus. As Christians, we must walk by the Spirit. As Christians, we must put to death the deeds of the body. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 1800s uh, preacher, 19th century preacher, he said the believer, like a man on shipboard, may fall again and again on the deck, but he will never fall overboard may fall again and again on the deck of a ship, but never fall overboard. The, 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 the believer gets up. The believer keeps persevering. The believer keeps following Jesus, but not on our own, by the Holy Spirit within us. If you hear me saying right now, you just need to follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, you're right. But if you hear me saying that on its own, that's, you're hearing me say the wrong thing. We gotta live by the Holy Spirit. We have to walk with the Holy Spirit. We have to surrender to the Holy Spirit. We have to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. We must let the Holy Spirit reign in our lives. The Greek verb translated put to death here suggests continuing action. This is perseverance. This is a continuing action of putting death the de- putting to death the deeds of the body. Being a Christian is not simply saying a prayer of salvation, saying a sinner's prayer, and then living like hell. That's not what God calls us to do. It's not simply saying, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade, and I can live however I want. No. No, that prayer is telling God, I'm committing my life to you. I'm committing my life to make you Lord and Savior, and I'm going to live for you, and I'm going to live and surrender to you again, but by the Holy Spirit within us. I like what John Piper writes. He says, when Paul says to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, in Romans 8, 13, Piper says, I take into mean that we should use the one weapon, the one weapon in the Spirit's armor that is used to kill, and that is the sword, which is the Word of God. In Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the Spirit is the one weapon in that list of armor in Ephesians 6 that is used to kill. Piper continues, so when the body is about to be led into a sinful action by some fear or craving, we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and kill that fear and that craving. Piper says, in my experience, that means mainly severing the root of sin's promise by the power of a superior promise. Sever the root of sin's promise by the power of a superior promise. For example... When I begin to crave some illicit sexual pleasure, the sword swinging that, that has often severed the root of this promised pleasure is Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Piper continues, I recall the pleasures I have tasted of seeing God more clearly from an undefiled conscience. And I recall the brevity, the brevity and superficiality and oppressive aftertaste of sin's pleasures. And with that, God has killed the conquering power of sin. Realize the brevity of sinful pleasures. Realize the awesomeness of God's greater pleasure. Remember the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Having promises at hand that suit the temptation of the hour is one key to successful warfare against sin. That's why we memorize scripture. That's why we make the scriptures a part of us. That's why we ruminate on scriptures, meditate on them. Piper continues, But there are times when we don't have a perfectly suited word from God in our minds. And there is no time to look through the Bible for a tailor-made promise. So we all need to have a small arsenal of general promises ready to use whenever fear or craving threaten to lead us astray. Here are four of my most oft-used promises in fighting against sin. Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. This is an arsenal that we can use, stored up in our minds to fight against sin. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's God speaking to us. Love it. Fear not, for I am with you. God is with us. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Philippians 4.19 is another scripture that could be part of our arsenal. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. The promise implicit in Philippians 3.8. In Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Can we say that? Anything that's not of God, I'll just count it as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus is worth more than anything else this world can offer. And of course, Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Be constantly adding to your arsenal of promises, but never lose sight of the chosen few that God has blessed in your life. God has given us these promises, and that's the sword of the Spirit. That's the Word of God. Paul concludes his thought in verse 14. Again, we're in Romans 8, and now verse 14. For all, for all, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. One writes, this is powerful, this may be the most succinct and specific answer in Scripture to the question, who is a child of God? Think about that. The question, who is a child of God? This verse answers it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you could put daughters of God there too. That's perfectly fine. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. Who is a child of God? And while doctrinal correctness is important, no amount of theological acuity can substitute for the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not just about knowing great doctrine, and I love doctrine. It's not just about knowing uh, all of the Bible backwards and forwards, and I think that's important for Christians to know. But we have to be led by the Spirit of God. Are you led by the Spirit of God? That brings the next section up. We are adopted into God's family, verses 15 through 17. We are adopted into God's family. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry, Abba, Father. 
We see that we have intimacy with the Father in these verses. We have an intimate, a close connection with the Father in these verses. You did not receive the spirit of slavery, no. That was the old way. The old way was being slave to sin. The old way was the spirit of slavery. Paul is now contrasting the way of a non-adopted son in the Greco-Roman world versus the way of an adopted son. A non-adopted son in the Greco-Roman world was just a slave. You hear that? We're not non-adopted into God's family. We are adopted into God's family. We're not slaves. We're children. We can cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit of slavery would give us more fear, but we don't have the spirit of slavery. No, we have the spirit of adoption. We have the Holy Spirit who seals us as children of the Most High God. One writes this, The Holy Spirit is not an agent of bondage, but is instead the means of our adoption into God's family. By the Spirit, we have a consciousness that God is our Father. God is our Father. One source shares, Roman adoption, which could take place at any age, canceled all previous debts and relationships, defining the new son wholly in terms of his new relationship to his father, whose heir he thus has become. Now I should add here, in the Greco-Roman world, in the first century Roman world, if you were part of a Roman family, you were not considered a son just because you were born to that family. You were considered a slave. And at a certain age, around 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, or it could have been a little bit older, at a certain age, they had a formal process of adopting you into that family. And when you were adopted, all previous debts and relationships are taken care of, and the new son, um, the new son is wholly viewed in terms of the new relationship to his father, whose heir he thus became. This means that we can cry, Abba, Father. God has adopted us into his family. All of our previous debts to sin are gone. All of our previous debts and problems are gone. We are spiritual debts, I mean. You still have to pay your mortgage, okay? Um, Don't say your pastor told you you don't have to pay anymore. Bank won't listen to that, not this day and age. Anyways, you know, all those previous debts to sin are gone, and you are adopted into God's family, and you can respond, respond, Abba, Father. Abba means father, and it is transliterated from the Aramaic. Paul writes it in the Greek, but it is an Aramaic word. And so to transliterate, to transliterate means to take the word and put it in the corresponding letters of another alphabet. In this case, it's the Aramaic word written in the Greek alphabet, and that is used about three times in the New Testament. So Abba means father, and, and then Paul gives a second word, father. And father, he uses the Greek word pater. And, and that's exactly the Greek word. Pater can mean father or grandfather or forefather. In the New Testament, Abba is always used to address God and is followed immediately by the translation. And we see that with Jesus in Mark 14, 36. And, and this double expression was common in the early church to add emphasis. To add emphasis. Paul seems to be conveying the intimacy that we can have with God being adopted into God's family. In Mark 14, 36, during Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane, he addressed God as Abba, Father. Now, don't miss this. Jesus, in his moment before going to the cross, his prayer at Gethsemane, addresses God as Abba, Father. And now, we are being told that we can address God the same way Jesus addressed God. And Jesus is time of need. In that crisis, right before the cross, when he's crying out his heart, his sweat is like drops of blood, he cries out, Abba, Father. We can also cry out to God in the same way because we are adopted in, into God's family. 
That's amazing. Paul builds on this in verse 16. Verse 16 says, The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, that's a little s spirit, that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our internal spirit, little s spirit, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit tells us that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit is, is, is testifying to us that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit is reminding us we are children of God. John MacArthur points out, in Roman culture, for an adoption to be legally binding, in Roman culture, for an adoption to be legally binding, seven, seven reputable witnesses had to be present. It has seven reputable witnesses attesting to its validity. Here's the deal. God's Holy Spirit confirms the validity of our adoption. God's Holy Spirit confirms the validity of our adoption. But, but not by some inner mystical voice, but by the fruit he produces in us and the power he provides for spiritual service. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, we have the testifying nature of the fruit of the Spirit within us, bearing witness that we are children of God because we have the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And this is powerful. How important this is that we are grafted into God's family and we have an inheritance from the Father. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 wraps up this section. So let's, let's read it with verse 16. So verse 16 says, uh, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with them in order that we may also be glorified with them. So we also have an inheritance, fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. God has appointed his son to be heir of all things, as Hebrews 1-2. Every adopted child will receive by divine grace the full inheritance. Christ receives by divine grace, by divine right. We have an inheritance just like Christ has an inheritance. Certainly now he's still fully God, and there's a major difference there. But we are still adopted into God's family. However, we do have to suffer in this Christian life. But we will, we will also be glorified with them. Let's make some applications. We need to allow the word of God to do the work of God to put to death the things of the flesh. Allow the word of God, that's the Bible, to do the work of God, uniting with the Holy Spirit, to put to death the things of the flesh. When the Holy Spirit comes together with the word of God and the church family, there is power in that. Because we're not meant to live the Christian life alone. We're meant to live the Christian life with the word of God and with the people of God. We need to use the word of God to put to death the deeds of the body. We need to use the word of God to put to death lust and envy and greed and idols and lies and pride and so much more. We must be encouraged, though, of the close relationship we have with God as Christians. We can put to death those sins because of the close relationship we can have with God as Christians. We must remember that the Christian life will include suffering. That's verse 17. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering all over the world right now. Many are suffering in the United States, but generally not nearly as much as the church in North Korea or China or Iran or Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq or India or many other countries. I love this illustration, which John Piper shares it, but it's about John Newton. Actually, it's John Newton's illustration. He's just sharing it. Uh, I'm going to close with a story from John Newton. 
That's exact, that's Piper writing here. I come back to it over and over to convict myself of my murmuring. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without murmuring. Or I think it's more literally, do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's difficult, isn't it? Well, think about it this way. All things without murmuring. So this is John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. If you know nothing about John Newton, know that he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, and there's much more to be said about that, but we'll move on. And so he's writing here in the, 18, in the 18th century, 1700s. There are no cars. There are only carriages. So picture a horse-drawn carriage. A man is on the way to New York to get his inheritance. Here's what happens. Okay, so a man is on his way to New York to get his inheritance, and he's on a horse-drawn carriage. Here's what happens. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. Let's just say it's worth $5 million, okay? And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. And this is where we are in our walkway toward heaven. Let's pause right here. We are in our walkway toward heaven. We are on our way towards heaven. We have an estate in heaven worth millions and millions. It's, it's just priceless, okay? And we are on our way. We're traveling through the hiccups and hurdles and struggles in this life on our way to our major estate. And I don't just mean a literal house. I mean major inheritance in heaven, okay? And that's where we are. So imagine... That this man is on his way to New York and his carriage breaks down. He's on his way to New York and he's getting a $5 million inheritance in New York and his carriage breaks down. He has to walk the last mile. Now just imagine what a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the way that remaining mile. Right? I mean, he is on his way to inherit a $5 million estate. He can walk the other mile without mummering and complaining, right? He can do that. What if, he, what, if, what if we saw him on his way and you know that he's capable of walking and you know that he's, he's inheriting $5 million and you see him saying, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. He's going to get there and he's going to get that $5 million and he can buy a new carriage and a driver for that carriage too. He's on the way to an inheritance worth millions of dollars. He can fix the carriage we as Christians have an inheritance in heaven, and that is more than we can ever imagine. Part of that inheritance we have received. You realize that? We've already received part of that inheritance. We've already received the Holy Spirit. And we can live life with Him. We will have bumps along the way of this life. We will have struggles with sin and persecution and suffering. But after persevering through this life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, persevering through this life, we will, have, we will be in glory in heaven. After persevering in this life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, don't miss that, we will have an inheritance in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these awesome truths in Romans 8. Romans 8, possibly uh, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And here we have this very succinct definition of who is a child of God. All those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. We have this awesome truth about adoption into your family. Oh Lord, how can we even take in the awesome treasures in this passage? The awesome truth in this passage. So Lord God, I pray for myself and this congregation that we will be just amazed and mesmerized of these glorious and awesome truths all day long. And may these awesome truths carry us through the week, all week long, until we meet again, whether Wednesday night Bible study or next Sunday morning or both. May we continue to be encouraged that we are sons and daughters of God. Oh, Lord, 
Enrapture us with that truth. Don't let it become just old news. This is awesome news. And as I always say, Lord, if there are people here who have never committed to you and they want to be assured that they have the Holy Spirit, as Romans 8, 9 says, and that they are sons and daughters of God, help them today to confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe in you as the one and only Savior, to trust in you and commit to you. And we can tell you that in a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that, I, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I am trusting in you and committing to you. Lord God, help us persevering in the faith, walking by the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite the praise team for the closing song. The altars are always open if you ever want to come forward to pray about anything. Amen. We're going to sing the first and the last.